Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this episode is called Mongols at the Gates. In the last episode, we heard the quite extraordinary story of the rise to power of one of history's greatest leaders, Genghis Khan. Now, when Genghis died in 1227, he'd created a Mongol empire that stretched from the Pacific Ocean to the Caspian Sea and was twice the size of the Roman Empire. He'd used the same military techniques that had brought success to Attila the Hun in the 5th century and also to the Turks against the Byzantines in the 11th century. That is, the use of massed cavalry armed with powerful composite bows that would shoot arrows straight through armour and chainmail. By uniting the Mongol clans, he'd created huge armies that were literally unstoppable and had gained a reputation for ferocity based on their track record of brutally sacking cities. But he was also quite an enlightened dictator since he encouraged commerce within the Mongol Empire, he made the first attempts to establish literacy amongst the Mongols, and he set up a highly efficient postal system that ran through the Asian steppe lands. So, how did all of this affect the Crusaders? Well, the answer is quite surprising, since although the Mongols invaded the eastern side of Christian Europe and devastated the principalities of Kiev and Moscow, as well as brutally invading Hungary, they never advanced into Western Europe. And the Western Europeans had a very mixed response to the Mongols that alternated between being terrified by the thought of a Mongol invasion of Europe and then hoping that the Mongols might convert to Christianity and joined them in a crusade against Islam. And it's certainly true that the Mongols had a much more profound effect on the Islamic world than the Christian one, since after Genghis's death they conquered most of the Middle East, although they couldn't defeat the Mamluks in Egypt. And they committed one of the greatest tragedies in history in 1258 when they brutally sacked Baghdad, which had long been one of the greatest cities in the Middle Ages with a population of nearly a million at times. But before we get to that, let's rejoin our narrative when Genghis Khan died in 1227 and the Mongol princes returned to Mongolia to elect a new ruler. As before, I'll read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. The death of the great conqueror Genghis Khan in 1227 gave the outside world a respite. Nearly two years passed before the succession to his empire was settled. By Mongol custom, the eldest son and his descendants had the right to succeed to the empire, but the youngest had the right to retain the homelands and the duty to call the assembly that would confirm the succession. Genghis had broken with custom and had already named his third son, Ogadai, as heir to the supreme power, passing over his eldest son, Juji, whose legitimacy was questioned and whose military and administrative record was deemed unsatisfactory. His second son, Jagatai, was a brilliant soldier, but too hot-tempered and impulsive to make a good ruler. 
Ogadai, though less spectacularly gifted, had, so Genghis thought, the patience and tact to handle his brothers and vassals. The youngest son, Tului, was perhaps the ablest of the brothers, but was handicapped by his self-indulgent habits. As the prince responsible for summoning the Great Assembly, or Kurultai as it was called, Tului was the pivotal figure in deciding the succession, and he persuaded the chieftains of the clan to carry out Genghis's wishes. Ogadai became Supreme Khan, and great riches were allotted to his relatives. Genghis's brothers took over the eastern provinces around the Amur River and in Manchuria. Tului kept the hearthlands by the Onon. Ogadai's personal patrimony was the old Karite and Naiman territory. Jagatai inherited the former Ugur and Karakitai kingdoms. Juju had already died, but his sons Batu order Berke and Shiban were given the western provinces as far as the Volga River. But while the princes were allowed autocratic rights over their subjects, they had to obey the imperial law of the Mongols and to accept the decisions of the Supreme Khan's government, which Ogadai set up at Karakoram in Mongolia. Meanwhile, in Western Asia, when the Mongols returned to Mongolia, Jalal al-Din, the Khwarezmian Turk, left his exile in India and collected around him the considerable remains of his father's armies. He was welcomed in Persia as a liberator from the Mongols. By 1225, he was master of the Persian plateau, as well as Azerbaijan, and by 1226, he was overlord of Baghdad itself. His kingdom, by threatening the Ayubites, was a useful factor in the policy of the the Crusaders of Syria. In 1225, he invaded Georgia. The Georgian sovereign George IV's sister, Queen Rusudan, sent an army to meet him, but the flower of Georgian cavalry had fallen four years before at the Battle of Kunani, and her troops were easily defeated at Ghani on her southern frontier. While the Queen fled herself to Kutais, Jalal al-Din occupied and sacked her capital of Tiflis and annexed the whole valley of the Kur River. In a attempt by the Georgians to recover their lost provinces in 1228 ended in disaster. The Georgian kingdom was reduced to its lands by the Black Sea. It was no longer of value as the northeastern post of Christendom, nor as a power that could challenge the Muslim hold on Asia Minor. But it was not long before the Mongols returned to the West. A Chinese Qin revolt had to be suppressed first in northern China, but early in 1231, a huge Mongol army under the general Kumakan appeared in Persia. The memory of the previous Mongol invasion served him well. As he marched from Khorasan to Azerbaijan, there was no resistance at all. Jalal ad-Din fled before him to die obscurely in Kurdistan. His Khwarizmian Turkish soldiers followed him in his flight and regrouped themselves in the Jazeera out of reach for the moment of the Mongol hordes. There they hired themselves out to the quarrelling Ayubites until their final destruction near Homs in 1246. Kormakan annexed all of northern Persia and Azerbaijan to the Mongol Empire and governed the province from 1231 to 1241 from a camp in Mugan near the Caspian Sea. In 1236 he invaded Georgia, 
Queen Rasudan had reoccupied Tiflis after the fall of Jalal al-Din, but she fled once more to Kutais and the Mongols took over eastern Georgia. The Georgians, once the atrocities of the conquest were over, much preferred them to the Khwarizmian Turks because of the efficiency of their administration. In 1243, the Queen herself became their vassal on the understanding that the whole Georgian kingdom was to be given to her son to rule. But the Russian Christians further to the north were less well satisfied. In the spring of 1236, a huge Mongol army assembled north of the Aral Sea under the command of Batu. After suppressing the Turkish tribes by the Volga River, the Mongol army marched into Russian territory in the autumn of 1237. Ryazin was taken by assault on the 21st of December and its prince and all its citizens massacred. Kolomna fell a few days later and early in the new year the Mongols attacked the great Russian city of Vladimir. It held out for only six days and its fall on the 8th of February 1238 was marked by another wholesale massacre. Suzdal was sacked about the same time and there followed the capture and destruction of the secondary cities of central Russia. These were Moscow, Yuryov, Galich, Pereslav, Rostov and Yaroslav. On the 4th of March, the Grand Prince Yuri of Vladimir was defeated and killed on the banks of the river city. Tver and Zorzok fell soon after the battle and the conquerors advanced over the Valdai hills towards Novgorod. Fortunately for that city, the spring rains flooded the marshes all around. The Mongol leader Batu retired to spend the rest of the year stamping out the last resistance of the Kipchaks while his cousin Monka conquered the Alans and the North Caucasian tribes and then made a raid of reconnaissance as far as Kiev. In the autumn of 1240, Batu led the main Mongol army into the Ukraine. Chernigov and Pereslav were sacked and Kiev, after a valiant defence, was taken by assault on the 6th of December. Many of its greatest treasures were destroyed and most of its population slain, although the commander of the garrison, Dmitri, was spared because of his courage which Batu admired. From Kiev, a branch of the army under Baidar, son of Jagatai, moved northwards into Poland, sacking Sandomir and Krakow. The Polish king summoned the Teutonic knights settled on the Baltic coast to his aid. But their joint armies under Duke Henry of Silesia were routed after a fierce battle at Wallstadt near Liegnitz on the 9th of April 1241. But Baidar did not venture to penetrate further westward. He devastated Silesia, then turned south through Moravia into Hungary. Batu and Sobotai had meanwhile crossed into Galicia, driving before them a horde of terrified fugitives from every nation of the steppes. In February 1241 they passed over the Carpathian Mountains into the Hungarian plain. King Bela of Hungary led his army out to meet them and was disastrously defeated on the 11th of April by the bridge of Mohai on the river Sadjo. The Mongols then poured into Hungary, into Croatia and as far as the shores of the Adriatic Sea. Batu remained himself for six months in Hungary, which he seems to have wished to annex to the Mongol Empire. But early in 1242, messengers arrived with the news that the great Khan Ogadai had died at Karakorum in Mongolia on the 11th of December 1241. Batu could not afford to be away from Mongolia while the succession was decided 
And so the Mongol invasion of Europe was halted. Indeed, there was civil war between Batu and his brothers until 1251, when Batu nominated Genghis Khan's grandson, Monka, as Great Khan. So Europe was saved from the Mongols. Indeed, the Europeans returned to their strange illusion that the Mongols could even be their allies against Islam. Everyone preferred to remember that the Mongols had fought against the Muslims and that Christian princesses had married into the imperial Mongol family. The great Khan of the Mongols might not be a Christian himself, he might not actually be the legendary Prester John, but it was hopefully assumed that he would be eager to champion Christian ideology against the forces of Islam. Indeed, the presence in the East of so mighty a potential ally made the moment seem ripe for a new crusade. And indeed, a willing crusader was at hand. That crusader was the King of France, Louis IX. For in December 1244, Louis IX fell desperately ill of a malarial infection. As he lay near to death, he vowed that if he recovered, he would set out for a crusade. His life was spared, and as soon as his health permitted, he began to make his preparations. The king was now thirty, a tall, slightly built man, fair-haired and fair-skinned, Few human beings have ever been so consciously and sincerely virtuous. As king, he felt that he was responsible before God for the welfare of his people, and nobody, not even the Pope himself, was allowed to come between him and this duty. It was his task to provide a just government. Though he was no innovator and scrupulously regarded the feudal rights of his vassals, he expected them to play their part, and if they failed, their powers were curtailed. This stern devotion won him admiration, even from his enemies, and their admiration was enhanced by his personal piety, his humility, and his spectacular austerity. His standard of honour was high, he never broke his pledged word. Towards malefactors, he was merciless and he was harsh, even cruel, in his dealings with heretics and with the infidel. In that age, when virtue was so much admired and so seldom achieved, King Louis stood out far above his fellow rulers. It was natural that he should wish to go crusading, and his actual adherence to the movement was greeted with delight. A crusade was indeed desperately needed on the 27th of November 1244, just after the disaster at Gaza. Galerian, Bishop of Beirut, sailed from Acre to tell the princes of the West, on behalf of the Patriarch Robert of Jerusalem, that reinforcements must must be sent if the whole crusader kingdom were not to perish. In June 1245, Pope Innocent IV gladly confirmed King Louis's crusading vows and sent Odo, Cardinal Bishop of Frascati, to preach the crusade throughout France. King Louis's preparations lasted for three years. Extraordinary taxes were levied to pay for the crusade, and the clergy, to their fury, were not exempted from paying them. The government of the country had to be settled. The Queen Mother Blanche, whose ability as a ruler had been proved during her her son's stormy minority years was entrusted once more with the regency. There were foreign problems to solve as well. The King of England must be persuaded to keep the peace. Relations with the German Emperor Frederick were also particularly delicate. Louis had won Frederick's gratitude by his strict neutrality in the quarrel between the papacy and Frederick, but in 1247 he had to threaten intervention when Frederick proposed to his allies an attack.
attack on the Pope at Lyon. Moreover, Frederick was the father of the legal King of Jerusalem. Without King Conrad's permission, Louis had no right to enter his country. It seems that French envoys kept Frederick fully informed of the intended crusade and that Frederick, while expressing his sympathy, passed the information on to the court of Egypt. Then ships had to be found to carry the crusade to the east. After some negotiations, Genoa and Marseille agreed to supply what was needed. The Venetians, who were already annoyed at a scheme that might interrupt their good commercial arrangements with Egypt, were thereby made still more hostile. At last, on the 12th of August 1248, King Louis left Paris and on the 25th he set sail from Aigues-Mortes for Cyprus. With him were the Queen and two of his brothers, Robert, Count of Artois and Charles, Count of Anjou. In addition to the French and English detachment under William, Earl of Salisbury, grandson of Henry II and the fair Rosamond, followed close behind. Other English lords had planned to join the crusade, but Henry III had no wish to lose their services and arranged for the Pope to block their passage. From Scotland came Patrick, Earl of Dunbar, who died on his journey at Marseille. The whole crusading squadron reached Limassol in Cyprus on the 17th of September and the king and queen landed there next morning. During the next few days, the troops for the crusade gathered. In addition to the nobles from France, there arrived from Acre, the acting Grand Master of the Hospital, the Grand Master of the Temple, and many of the crusader Syrian barons. King Henry of Cyprus received them all with cordial hospitality. When the plan of campaign was discussed, everyone agreed that Egypt should be the objective. It was the richest and most vulnerable province of the Ayubai. Empire and men remembered how during the Fifth Crusade the Sultan had been even willing to exchange Jerusalem itself for Damietta. When the decision was made, King Louis wished to start operations at once. The Grand Masters and the Crusader Barons, however, dissuaded him. The winter storms would soon begin. King Louis accepted their advice, and while he waited in Cyprus, his thoughts turned to an alliance with the Mongols. The background to this was auspicious, for in 1245, Pope Innocent IV had sent two embassies to Mongolia to the court of the Great Khan. One, led by the Franciscan John of Pien del Carpine, left Lyon that April, and after travelling for 15 months across Russia and the steppes of Central Asia, reached the imperial camp at Sira Ordu, close to Karakorum in Mongolia in August 1246. It was just in time to witness the General Assembly of the Mongols or the Kurultai that elected Giuk to supreme power. Giuk, who had many Nestorian Christians amongst his advisers, received the papal envoy kindly, but when he read the Pope's letter requiring him to accept Christianity, he wrote an answer ordering the Pope to acknowledge his authority and to come with all the princes of Western Europe to do him homage. John of Pierre del Carpine on his return to the papal court at the end of 1247 gave Innocent together with this discouraging letter a detailed report in which he showed that the Mongols were only out for conquest but Innocent would not allow his illusions to be entirely shattered. His second embassy under the Dominican Aslin of Lombardy had set out a little later and travelled across Syria and met the Mongol general Baichu in May 1247 at Tabriz. Baichu whom Aslin found personally fairly offensive and disagreeable 
was nevertheless ready to discuss the possibility of an alliance against the Ayubites. He planned to attack Baghdad and it would suit him to have the Syrian Muslims distracted by a crusade. Therefore, he sent two envoys, Ibeg and Serkis, the latter of whom was certainly an Nestorian Christian, back with Asselin to Rome. And though they had no powers, the hopes of the West rose again. They stayed about a year with the Pope. In November 1248, they were told to return to Baichu with complaints that nothing further was happening about the alliance with the Mongols. But while King Louis was in Cyprus in December 1248, two Nestorian Christians called Mark and David arrived at Nicosia, saying that they were sent by a Mongol general, Al-Jigadi, who was the Great Khan's commissioner at Mosul. They brought a letter talking in fulsome terms of the Mongols' sympathy for Christianity. Louis was delighted and at once dispatched a mission of Dominicans under Andrew of Longjumeau and his brother, who both spoke Arabic. Andrew had indeed been the Pope's chief agent in recent negotiations. They carried with them a portable chapel as a suitable gift for a nomad convert Khan and relics for its altar and other worldlier presents. They left Cyprus for Mosul in January 1249, but the Mongols sent them on a much longer journey to Mongolia itself, where, on their arrival at Karakorum, they found that the Mongols regarded the king's gifts as the tribute from a vassal to a sovereign. Andrew returned three years later with nothing more than a patronising letter in which the Mongols said that they had no intention of allying with the Christians to help their cause against Islam, and they requested that similar gifts should be sent every year. But long before this, when still in Cyprus, King Louis decided not to wait for Mongol help and to attack Egypt alone. The Seventh Crusade was about to begin. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd be really grateful if you wanted to recommend it to a friend or leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll continue with the story of the Seventh Crusade. (laughs) 